Pastor Stewart is out of town, so uh, we have the privilege today to have a, a close, close friend of many of us, um, a guy that most of us that know him. If you know Jamie McClanahan, you'll love him because that's the kind of guy that he is, uh, and he does that in return. So, Pastor Jamie, would you, would you come and listen? I told him I, I would do that. <laughs> I would do this. Um, Jamie, when he came here, he came as our youth pastor years ago. And uh, he now has uh, far surpassed most of us pastors, and he now has his doctorate. So I'm not, I told him I wouldn't call him Dr. Gene, <laughs> but uh, uh, my friend. Thank you, Pastor. Yeah. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Well, good morning. It's a real privilege to be here today. Pastor Bobby and I were talking on the way in, and uh, when I first got my doctorate, the next church I went to preach at, they had it in the bulletin, and I was all excited, we'll get that bulletin and, you know, save it or whatever, and they put on there, Dr. Jeremy McClant- McClanahan, and they just butchered the whole thing, and, you know, I still saved it because I thought it was kind of funny, the Lord's sense of humor saying, hey, look, don't, you know, but, um, boy, that was kind of funny, you know, I told my wife about it, she laughed, and, and then I told my wife, uh, you know, I think I'm ready to, you know, preach yesterday evening, I'm like, all right, I'm ready to go, and she said, yeah, but uh, you have some raccoon eyes here right now, so um, I was looking at my, my eyes this morning in the mirror, and I, I wore my sunglasses all week, and uh, so y'all bear with me, don't make fun of me too much this morning. But I really am glad to be here with you. Calvary has always seemed like home to me. And in many ways, I feel like I'm a son of Calvary uh, because many of you I've known for a while and you have helped me, you have raised me, you've been patient with me. And one of the greatest gifts that you can give to anyone, whether they're an associate pastor or a lead pastor, is that you give them in some ways your fellowship, that you're going to commit to say, I'm going to follow this person. And uh, that, is, um, that is very humbling. And so I'm very thankful for the relationships that I have here, and I feel very blessed and very grateful. And so let me also say Happy Father's Day to all of the fathers. Um, I uh, posted a picture this morning on Facebook about the first time that my kids were together, very little, in the hospital room, and what a beautiful uh, time that is. Um, I would like to invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4. Pastor Stewart told me I have about two hours per service to preach, so we're going to be here a while, okay? We'll still get you in time for uh, the, uh, the buffet at uh, Golden Corral, though, okay? So. But um, this morning, we celebrate fatherhood, but we also are talking about contentment. And Philippians is a book that is known for understanding what true joy really is. And so I'm telling you today that you can experience true joy despite what is happening outside of you. Okay, And today is fatherhood, and so fatherhood, it reaches back, and there are no doubt some fathers here who you might be discontent with your fatherhood historically. You might look back and think, man, I wish I could have done this, I wish I could have done this, and it prevents you from being content as a father because of what has happened in the past. Maybe you're here and you're going through something, and you're not content as a father, and you got kids in the house or out of the house, and, and you're just discontent in that way. And then some of you might, you might be in a place where you might not be looking forward to being a father because you've had such a bad experience. But I've got to tell you something, that fatherhood is maybe a picture of many other things that take place in our lives, is that we can experience 
true father or true contentment in Jesus Christ. It is possible to have something in you that is a peace that works out of you, that despite what is going on outside, you can still have a respite. You can still have a a refuge because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. So in Philippians chapter 4, we're going to get there in just a moment. Um, The goal of this message is for you to be able to say before God and perhaps before those that are around you, three simple words. I am content. I am content. And there's words that really mean the same thing for a Christian, and it's three words as well, and is this, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Now, it's one thing to say that today, but when you go back to work, you have to say that too. And when you have that hard uh, situation with an employee or with a friend or with a family member, Jesus is enough. And so I mentioned that the other day, a fellow I was working with said, what are you preaching on tomorrow? And I said, well, I'm preaching on contentment. And he said, kind of tongue in cheek, well, let me guess, contentment is found in Jesus, right? I said, well, yeah, that's the root of it, but you got to work up the tree from the trunk out to the branch and the fruit to really understand what contentment is. And so that's what we're going to do today. But this message is something that flies in the face of Christians, Because our culture around us does not give us this understanding of contentment. In fact, one of the number two songs of all time, according to Rolling Stones, is this song. Many of you know, I can't get no satisfaction. Now, we know there's many ways that that can be applied. But overall, from 1965 to today, I would say that's pretty true about the American culture. That we are a society that lacks contentment. We are discontent. We are discontent with uh, marriages, family, jobs, our stuff, our bank accounts, whatever it might be. We are a people that is discontent. And we need the contentment that comes, not from something outside of us, but we need contentment that comes through Jesus Christ. And there is also contentment that I should mention. It is a short-term contentment that maybe is uh, just after the wedding or just after the job promotion or just after the degree is earned or the job promotion takes place. You, You find a short period of satisfaction and contentment and then it goes away until something else comes. And listen, let me tell you, that is not the way God wants you to live your life. Contentment doesn't have to be uh, this limited to these few days and hours and weeks or months. It can be something that you live out every day. And that's what God wants you to experience today. But you can't do that if you don't have Jesus Christ. So the sermon title is Contentment in Christ. And I am assuming something. I'm assuming that you can't find contentment without him. And so Paul knew that in Philippians chapter 4. But you know, this, this is a, a problem that doesn't just affect us today in our world that we say, I can't get no satisfaction. But this is an ancient problem. If you think back into the scriptures, you think back into the roots of creation, and you think about the angels that were here, created beings, right? There was one that stood up and said, I can't get no satisfaction. And his name was Lucifer. And he led other angels away from God, and they were discontented, a third of the angels, that race of just beautiful creatures that God made. And then Satan wasn't satisfied, uh, and so he, he took his discontentment, his dissatisfaction to the Garden of Eden, and he preyed upon the free will of Adam and Eve. And they gave in to the temptation there, exercising their free will. And they said, we are not content with what you have given us, God. 
and the sin of the first parents like a domino effect has carried down into our world today so that you and I, by default, are not content creatures. We need something to infuse us. We need something to change us from the inside out. And that is this faith relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so Paul in Philippians chapter 4, he is emphasizing this, this thing of contentment in Jesus Christ. You should already be there, but the letter of Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison. So this, this man who is, is writing about joy and echoing this theme of joy and contentment some 18 times is reading this or is writing this while he's chained. You know, as he's writing, the, the chains are, are, are clinking. And he's saying, you can have joy, you can be content in the midst of the chains of life. Boy, what a message that Paul brings. He, he founded this church in Philippi that he's writing the letter to. He founded it some ten years previous. And yet he is still so concerned for them. And he's concerned mainly for their peace of mind. He's concerned for their contentment. Because let me tell you something. One of, one of the lessons of this book is joy is contagious. And contentment is contagious. And if you lack joy and if you lack contentment, your light for Jesus Christ is dim. I mean, we, we have everything that we need in our faith relationship with Jesus Christ. We have it. And when we live it out, it's a witness. But if we are constantly discontent, if we are constantly murmuring, then we, we turn down that light. And our salt becomes less. So God wants us to live a contented life. Uh, Paul wants the believers in Jesus Christ in the church of Philippi to live content. So today, we're going to look at how to find contentment in Jesus Christ from Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Would you join me as we pray together? Let us pray. Our Father God, we come before you in the name of Jesus, Lord, and I thank you for Calvary Baptist Church. Lord, so many people in this room are just so near and dear to me, Lord. I would not be able to stand here and proclaim your word if it was not for them, if it was not for them saying yes to you, God, and, and opening up their hearts and their homes to us, Lord. I thank you so much for Calvary Baptist Church, Lord. I pray a blessing over those that have come, Lord. I pray that they would lean in. As your word is proclaimed, and God, I pray that their ears would be opened and unstopped, that your spirit might woo them and call them, Lord, to act, to make a decision today that they will be joyous, that they will be content despite what is happening outside of them, Lord, that you would invade their discontentment and give them an inner peace. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the main thought here today, the, the, the thick kind of thought or the distilled thought, is true and lasting contentment is the fruit of joy. True and lasting contentment is the fruit of joy that is rooted in Jesus Christ. You got that? True and lasting contentment is the fruit of joy rooted in faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is enough. The Greek word here is self-sufficient. And the Greeks had this, this incredible picture of this word archaeo in the Greek, this idea or idealism that came with it, that man, if you were self-sufficient, you were the man. You had a great amount of virtue because you didn't need anybody outside of you to tell you who you were and what you were to do. And so they celebrated this, this thing of contentment. But Paul comes at it from a different perspective and he says that is a flawed way of thinking because no man is sufficient unto himself. Not, not, not really, they're not sufficient unto themselves. In fact, believers in Jesus Christ can't have that attitude. 
We have got to have that point where we have opened up our souls to the forgiving power of Jesus. Where he has come in, he has changed us from the inside out. Only then can we find sufficiency for our lives. Only then can we find identity, who we are in Christ. And only then can we discover our true mission. We can't do it apart from that. So today, four ways contentment is secured in Christ. That's what we're going to be looking at. Just four ways from this passage of Scripture. The first one has to do with securing peace, finding peace, and then sharing it with others. Contentment is secured by seeking unity in Christ for the sake of the gospel. Now, in verses 1 through 3, there's a little bit of a conflict happening in the church. Um, I know that, uh, that you guys probably can't relate to that. There's probably never been any conflicts in the history of Calvary Baptist Church, right? Um, but uh, they had some conflict happening in their church, and it was destroying not only the unity, but it was destroying the peace, and it was destroying the contentment that they had as individuals, but as a group, as a church. It was destroying them. And Paul, who loves this church, picks up the pen with the shackles, and he starts writing this letter. And he is concerned about this, this unity being preserved. Why? For the sake of the gospel. Look what he says. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Iodia, I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask also, true companions, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So right from the very get-go, Paul is writing to Christians, like you in those cushy blue seats that you're in, okay? He's writing to people who are believers, who are faith uh, people, and they are experiencing conflict. And he says, no, you want joy, you want contentment, you have got to rid yourself of this conflict. Help each other out in the midst of this. Come back to the source of your unity, which is, doesn't really have to do with you know, committees, doesn't have to even do with a history of a church or even a personality. The, the unity is the founder of our faith, which is Jesus. Come back to the unity. Paul is saying this, you received peace when you accepted Jesus Christ. You received him, now you must give that peace out and you must make peace. You must not only seek peace, but you must be peacemakers. If you want individual contentment, But as a church, as you come together, if you want to experience continual contentment, you must seek the peace that comes from God through Jesus, and you must make that peace with others. It is up to you, whether you are 15 or 55 or whatever, whether you've been a Christian a year or 20 years, it doesn't matter. You're called to make peace because you have been given peace by God. It is your responsibility. Paul, very fond of this Philippian church. He's, he's concerned for them. He's proud of them in many ways. They've done many great things, but they're still lacking. He considers them his joy, his, his crown, the runner's wreath at the end of a, of a race. He says, this is what you are to me. I am proud of you, but you need some help. You know, one of the things I do in premarital counseling is I always try to, uh, to demonstrate the, the importance of unity in Christ as a couple comes together. And so I usually have an object I put in the middle. That's a big object, and I have two smaller objects. And I try to explain to them that as they draw near to Jesus Christ, they're going to look around and they're going to see that they're closer together. You see, to have a good marriage, you have to have an immovable and inexhaustible source of unity. And Jesus is that. 
You want to put your kids in there? They're going to leave the house. You want to put a hobby in there? They're going to leave. You want to put these, these big goals maybe that you have? Buy a house, get a vacation home, get a camper, whatever. That's going to be gone. But the only unity that lasts, that is inexhaustible, is that faith in Jesus Christ. The two coming together as one, but coming together for the sake of Jesus, towards Jesus. And that principle is applicable for us too. The person that you're next to, whether you're married to them or not, if you draw near to Jesus and he says, this is who you are, this is your identity... And then he says, by the way, because this is your identity, this is what you're supposed to do, and this is your destiny. You're going to be closer to those people, even if they don't have the same Myers-Briggs score that you do, even if they don't have the same personality that you do. You know, you're still going to be able to work through things because you have the same identity, you have the same father, you have the same savior, and you have the same task to make disciples. Some of us aren't experiencing contentment because we've forgotten our source of unity and we've put something else in the center of church other than Jesus and his mission. And we must back up. We must get some perspective. And Paul is trying to encourage these, these folks to do this. He's saying, look, there's a lot on the line here, right? There's, there's the, the gospel is on the line here. But he's also reminding them and saying, pick your eyes up because you're not here long. Eventually you're going to stand before God with that big old book of life. And your name's going to be in it or it's not. There's a whole lot on the line here. So Paul's also encouraging them when they draw near to Jesus, those two objects coming near to one, that they are to extend their hands back and that they are to draw others into that same unity. Be peacemakers because you were given peace. The Apostle Paul wrote of this to the Corinthians church uh, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. You can footnote that if you want, 2 Corinthians five eighteen through 21. A great verse says, God brought us back to himself through Christ, and God likewise has given us this task of, reci- or of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them, and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. You have a responsibility. Perhaps someone is lacking contentment in this room because no one's really reached out to them to bring them back to the peace source. And you can do that today. Perhaps some young father needs a reminder or needs some help, needs someone to just stand alongside of them to remind them of the source of true contentment. When peace is made in this way, unity in Christ, and gives us our identity and our mission and our destiny, something will happen in you. A joy will begin to grow inside of you. A contentment will begin to grow, and it's going to be like a geyser that pours out. And no matter how much junk gets on top of that geyser, that dirt, those circumstances, those difficulties, the pressure that comes from living a joy-filled life will eventually just burst out. It will not be able to be contained. And so your contentment will spill over into others and affect them in a great way. The second aspect of this contentment is contentment is secured by choosing to live a joy-fueled life. 
Contentment is secured by choosing. It's a choice. You have to choose to live content. You have to choose to live joyful. Don't let your circumstances determine when you're going to be joyful. One of the most joyful times in my life is when I held those little babies in my hands after, after they were born. Little Caleb and little Brianna. It's so joyful. But around two or three, it wasn't always so joyful because they didn't agree with what I had to say. And sometimes the, the, the terrible twos last until terrible seven and eights, right? Some of y'all can attest to that. Maybe it'll be 17 and 18. I hope not. I'm just kidding. So, but we have this contentment is secure by choosing to live a joy-fueled life. And it creates something in us. It creates an inner peace. So look at verse 4 through 7. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness or gentleness, some of you might have in your, your uh, copy of the Word of God, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And this is the effect, and I love this. And the peace of God, which surpasses all of your understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Well, that sounds, that that verse 7, it sounds a whole lot like maybe a description of contentment, doesn't it? I love that. It's the eye of the storm in life that we find when we place our trust in Jesus Christ. So uh, out of this, this small portion of Scripture, we have joy that is described for us in several different ways. First, joy is persistent. It is a persistent thing. It's not saying, well, I'm happy one time after I, I gave my life to Christ at the revival or at the VBS or whatever, or then I rededicated that one time. No, it's saying that this is a continual thing. Rejoice always. And again, just in case you forgot, Paul says, rejoice. If you look at the root of that word, it means be joyful again and 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 again. And I could do it for, you know, for a whole hour, but you know, not really be that effective, right? So, but rejoice, Paul is saying here. Have joy. Joy is persistent. It's not a one and done thing. It's something that is consistent in your life through the hard times, through the good times. Joy is also contagious. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Those who have experienced true joy, they cannot help but share it. They want to share it. They're generous. It's a contagious kind of joy. Man, that kind of thing is lacking in many of our lives, in many of our churches. It's lacking. We need that. We need to feel that. And when we do that, we are an incredible witness for the gospel's power, and we can transform others with that message. Next, uh, down the line, it says joy is, joy is urgent. Uh, if you underline the Lord is at hand, that is so important. We, we have to have a persistent joy. We have to have a generous joy, a contagious joy, Because we're not going to be here forever. You're not always going to be able to live out the joyful life, the contentment life here on earth. It's it's, it's just you have a limited time. Do you get that? I mean, you got maybe, you know, nine or ten decades, okay? I think there's an island off in the Mediterranean where they have the greatest population density of people who are 100 plus and older, right? Maybe you look into that, AAA will get you there. I'm not sure. But you're still going to leave this planet unless the Lord comes back. And this is the point, is that joy has to be urgent. There has to be some form of urgency. You can't just say, hey, look, I got this great peace from God. I have this incredible contentment because I know everything's going to be all right. I know where my destiny is going. I I understand God's going to be there with me. And then you sit back and you do nothing. You have an incomplete view of joy. 
Because joy has an urgency. I have to share. I have to go. I have to make peace. Joy is also a great resistor. It is resistant. And that's the latter part of this. And uh, it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. If there is something that is an anti-corrosive for your soul, it is joy. The world around us seems to kind of rot things. It seems to, to develop rust on us at times. But joy is something that pushes that back. It is a resistor. And so if you are a person who is deficient of joy, you will be a person who is a worrier and often anxious because you do not have the peace that God wants you to have. The Greek word here translated means to be pulled in different directions. Listen, you can't be content if you're pulled in 50 different directions all the time. If you don't know your purpose here, you don't know what you're supposed to do here, you don't know this, you may be going to do this, you're not sure. You don't have that one purpose that comes again, listen to me, that comes from understanding your identity and living out your mission. I pulled in different directions. What a great understanding of that word anxious. It's not the way that God wants you to live, and it's a terrible way to live as a witness for Jesus, always confused about who you are and what you're supposed to do. The old English root word is the word we get strangle from. A little bit different view of it. But if you're a person who, who has uh, this, this anxiousness or is a worry or whatever it might be, you often know it kind of feels like you're, you're getting constrained, like you can't get enough breath in your soul. I, I grew up with a, a mother who was a, a worrywart. Some of you might have that same issue. I'm not sure. My mom, she worried about everything, and she also prayed an incredible amount. Probably prayed more than any other woman I've ever seen. And my mother and my father often prayed together, especially when my mom would get kind of worried, really worried. They would pray together, often, two or three times a day. And so it's so interesting here when it says, don't be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about the job loss. Don't be anxious about the relational problems that you're having in your marriage, in, in your workplace. Don't be, don't be anxious about the, the sickness maybe that you're facing or someone next to you is facing. The financial situation. Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, kind of covering it all. And then he says this, but rather replace that with something. Rather pray about everything. And when you pray, gives us a little bit of a guidelines here. He says, when you pray, you need to be grateful. You need to be thankful for what God has done. When you pray, you need to be direct and honest with God. Make your request known to God. He wants to hear it. Don't beat around the bush with all this elaborate language and praying like Deacon Jones next door or whatever. You be you when you pray. That's what he wants. And when you do that, it will push back that anxiety that is eating away at your joy and contentment for living. Do not be anxious about everything, but in everything by prayer. And then what is the result? Uh, worry activates prayer, and then prayer leads to peace. Overwhelming peace that you can stand in the midst of the storm with your fist up in the air and say, I can in Christ. And it doesn't make sense to those who are looking on the outside. How could that person possibly be experiencing a peace when they lost a husband or a wife or a child or they're facing a disease or a sickness or they have no money in the account? They just lost this job or that or whatever it might be. How can they do this? And yet we have this peace from God that comes from him. And it surpasses our understanding. It guards our hearts and minds. Moving right along here, the, the imagery that Paul uses is the imagery, this peace of God is like a garrison, uh, a group of soldiers outside of a walled city. 
And that God, like that, guards your mind and your heart from anxiety and worry as you submit yourself to him in prayer. I love what Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 says. It says, keep your lives free from the love of money or possessions and be content with what you have because God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Spending time in the presence of God, feeding on the presence of God, is one of the greatest medicines for the soul that is lacking contentment. And if you're not doing that, and you're wondering why you are not content, that might be why. Because you haven't been still. He's trying to whisper healing words to you. He's trying to give you help and hope and pick your eyes up to look again to the horizon. But you're too busy, and you haven't fed on the presence of God. You haven't fed on the word of God and the presence of God uh, this morning. We've done that through worship. We're doing that as we read the word here. So we have this understanding that God's presence is what nurtures us. It reminds us of his promises and it brings us into his presence to this secret contentment that we can only have as we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You know, the latter part of Paul's words there, guarding our hearts and minds, is, is a transition point in this passage. Because he's moving now to another section where he's talking about another way that a believer can secure contentment. I want to move right along here. But in verses 8 and 9, contentment is secured by minding your mind for the glory of God. And I know that sounds a long, loaded phrase. But minding your mind for the glory of God. Because your thought life, it's everything. Your thought life determines your feelings, and your feelings determine your actions, and it leads to a character development in you, and eventually you stand before God based on what you're thinking about today and tomorrow and the next day. So, contentment is secured by minding your mind for the glory of God. A a minding of your mind that no doubt moves to a moving of the hands and the feet for God on mission with him. Look what it says here in verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, he goes through this list of, of things. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, pure, lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard, there is, there is the mind part, right? What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Once again, the the presence of God, bringing the comfort that is needed mentally for us when we need contentment. The first part of this, verse 8, is is minding your mind. Now listen, uh, there's six different items mentioned here. They're kind of guarded with this phrase of whatever, which, which is this broad category of things. But I want, to mention, I want to mention one of these things, or, or just one or two of these things. And the first one is this. If you're going to be someone who minds your mind for the glory of God, you've got to feed yourself on truth. You've got to feed yourself on truth. And what you have in your hands is a primary source of truth. Because once you have truth, everything else falls into place. You can have two people in the room and one person can say, that's beautiful. The other person can say, that's not. And the person who is, whose foundation is laid with truth, who is backed before truth, they will have it right. Oh, there's so many examples of this that we could give from music that someone could listen to and say, man, that's beautiful. Another person could say, no, it's not, and this is why. And they'll, they'll take into a scripture passage and it'll be contrary to the truth. Someone would say, look at that relationship, it's beautiful, isn't it? And someone would say, no, it's not, because it's not built on truth. Now we're digging in, aren't we? And we might be hitting some veins in our society today. 
Truth trumps everything. It is the foundation. And the word of God is what determines what is truth. If you want contentment, you have got to mind your mind for the glory of God by feeding your mind on truth. What is your mental diet? What are you taking in every day? I don't know how many hours are spent. The average is like three or four hours a day of people consuming social media. You know, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all those things. They're on them all the time. But how much have they really spent being quiet before the Lord and His Word? And they wonder why they're not content. I just read an article the other day that Instagram users are the most uh, uh, discontented of all the social media and how many hours they're on it every day. Um, Anyway, so those things aren't bad in themselves, but they can kind of overwhelm and eclipse uh, the truth, the, the importance that we're giving, feeding our mind on truth. So it is, it is this understanding of truth, aletheia is the Greek word here. It's the opposite of all things that are dishonest and unreliable. And also another part of this is we are to think about purity. Hagna is the Greek word there. It refers to things that are wholesome. What are you taking in? What is your, your diet, your mental diet? Because your mental diet will determine your level of exercise, just like it is in, in everyday life. What you eat affects the way you, you, you act, the way you do, the energy that you have for living. So it, it affects us in the way that we are moved with our hands or our feet before God. The other thing that's interesting about this is contentment is learned. You get that? It's not something that you're just going to get to this certain point in your Christian life. Oh, I've been a Christian 10 years. I'm content. Uh, Paul learned contentment. Twice in this passage of Scripture, you look down at it, there's a phrase that is repetitive. He learned. He learned it. And that's why he can sit his back up against a wall, chained to Roman soldiers writing letters. Because he learned the secret of contentment here. And he says, whatever you have learned and received and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. You know, one of the images that I have um, is, uh, with the mind anyway, is that the mind is kind of like a garden. And the things that you take into your mind are the seeds that you're putting into your garden. And those seeds grow, and boy, weeds grow with them, don't they? And you've got to constantly tend it. You've got to constantly weed. You've got to constantly water. You've got to constantly nurture and cultivate that soil, just like your mind and the thoughts that you're bringing in. And eventually fruit will come. And the fruit is the, is the, the fruit of, of, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. It's the fruit of the Spirit that comes. But there's a lot of weeds in my garden. I don't know about you. And I have to weed it every day. And so we have to mind our mind so that we can glorify and honor God. One man put it this way. A man's mind may be likened to a garden which may be intellectually cultivated or allowed to run wild. But whether cultivated or neglected, it must and will bring forth. If no useful seeds are put into it, then an abundance of useless weed seeds will fall therein and will continue to produce that kind. Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote this about this. He says about thoughts. He says, sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an act and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap character. Sow character and you reap a destiny. That was a poet. And they're all echoing what the Proverbs have to say. In Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7, the writer of Proverbs says, For as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Paul would later write to uh, the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. He said, take every thought captive so that you can obey Christ. It's work. 
It's work for us to, to look at this and, and to control what comes in and, and to take captive those thoughts that dishonor the Lord and to move forward. So right thinking is so very important. But the last part of this and the last part of this message has to do with receiving God's provision. So contentment is secured by receiving God's providence. It is secured by receiving God's providence with confidence. Receiving God's providence, uh, providence with confidence. And you know how long it took me to get that, that rhyming thing? That took me a while, man. Like a couple of days before I was like, man, you know, that's great. I should be a Christian rapper. No, I shouldn't. Um, <laughs> may not be the right thing to think about. Anyway, so, um, so anyway, so when you look at this, God's providence is, with confidence is what we are to receive. Look what it says in verse 10. It says, I rejoice, there it is again, in the Lord greatly. That now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking in need, he says, for I have learned in whatever situation I am, there it is, and you can underline it, to be content. I have learned to be content. There it is, learned. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. And in, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. You hear it, the back and forth, the back and forth, the ups and down, the storms, the peace. Paul is saying, I know how to be content in the midst of my circumstances. And this morning, even though you're sitting here looking purdy with the Bible in your hand, you might be down. Some of you might be up, but tomorrow some of you might be down, some of you might be up, might be reversed. And so Paul is saying, I've learned in the ups and the downs, I know how to be content. And then we have this, uh, and in every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty of hunger and abundance and need. And, and the verse that many of you, when you turn to Philippians chapter 4, <laughs> this one was underlined, I bet, Right? 413, that's the one that we love. We, we, we write that down on our shoes. We write it down everywhere and we think, hey, I can climb Mount Everest. I can put the ball on a goal. I can slam dunk it and all that kind of thing. But do you realize that you can't take this verse out of context and make it say what you want? This has to do with contentment. You can be content through Christ who gives you strength. You can do it. Jesus is enough. I am content. It's possible for that to happen. So we look at this three characteristics of God's providence just in this this little passage. God's providence is oftentimes through others, through others' generosity. God works through you to minister to the body of Christ and to care for others. Paul is thankful that this church was moved to help him, to bring him uh, a gift, to give him supplies. He's thankful for this. God's providence comes from others in verse 10. And then in verse uh, 11 and 12, God's providence is, is smart. <laughs> it's an intellectual kind of providence. He knows what he is doing. He is sovereign over all things here. And so Paul is saying, no matter what circumstances, I can be content. I've learned the secret. And the word there, secret, is, is it's kind of misleading because it really it means the mystery. Because you know what? When we put mystery to something, it means we really can't fully experience it. Or we really can't fully understand it until we've experienced it. So mystery would be like, I placed my, my faith and trust in Jesus. I've taken that step of faith to say I'm going to be content. And now i am just got to trust in God. i got to trust him, even though I don't always see or understand the final outcome. And so that's the idea with the mystery here, the secret of, placing, uh, of facing plenty and hunger. And then moving down the last part, God's providence uh, requires full dependence on Jesus Christ. I can do only some things is what it says, right? 
I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In closing here today, uh, I'd like to leave you with uh, an illustration that hopefully will stick with you. But as I was studying for this, there's a man by the name of Warren Wearsby, many of you know, and um, have heard him. And he describes the Apostle Paul's disposition as a, a thermostat. And I don't know about that, you guys, but like in every house that I live in, thermostats are different. The temperatures are different where they rise and fall. And sometimes I can figure out the thermostat because, it, you know, it's kind of basic, the little spin dials. Man, I miss those things. And um, I have to get my wife every time to like reprogram it and check her email and do all this stuff on the thermostat. Now they make them with all these computer things and they're just, they're a little bit too much for me. But, um, but anyway, but the thermostat is something that regulates the temperature around, right? And the thermometer... It's something that just simply measures the temperature, the current temperature. And so the point that uh, Pastor Warren Wearsby was making is that we need to be people who are more like a thermostat, like Paul was, who regulated the environment around him and didn't just register the temperature. When everybody's up, he's up. When everybody's mad, he's mad. When everybody's sad, he's sad. That's not true Christian contentment. The application here is Paul, man, he was, he was a thermostat, and we need to be the same way. We don't need to just simply register what is going on around us up and down, like he says in the language here of having and not having. Um, we need to learn the secret of contentment like Paul did and that it came through faith in Jesus Christ. I am content. And you know what? Tomorrow morning, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to say, I am content. You say, so what? What's the big deal? Because I'm going to work tomorrow morning at a medicine shop and at White's Truck Stop. And I've been going there for six months, six and a half months I've been working there. Now, I want to be a, a pastor again, work in a church. But you know what? For me to stand up here today and say, I am content in front of you in this nice pulpit and this you know, clean, shiny room, that's one thing. But tomorrow morning, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to say, Lord, I can in Christ. Jesus is enough. I am content. And I hope that you can say the same thing. True and lasting contentment is the fruit of a soul securely rooted in Jesus Christ. Today we've looked at four different ways that it is secured from Philippians chapter 4 verses 1 through 13. And the lingering question is, are you content with your life today? Do you have the inner peace and satisfaction that comes only through faith in Jesus Christ, that he has cleansed you from your sins, that he has given you a new way to live, changed your identity to a child in Christ or a child of God, given you a new mission to make disciples that ends in a reward of heaven? If you need to do that today, make this altar, make this time, make this the day that you make the decision to find true contentment in Jesus by making him your Savior and Lord. But many of you I know have already done that because I know many of you. And so for you, perhaps today is just laying down your discontentment before God. Saying, God, I'm discontent in this area, but I can in Christ. And so I don't know what area that is for you. Maybe it's a marriage, maybe it's a job, maybe it's uh, finances, maybe it's something else. But I want to challenge you. Uh, You can come down front here, you could do it in your seat, it doesn't matter. But lay down your discontentment before God and receive anew the great contentment and peace that comes from identity in Jesus and destiny from him.